You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the newsroom to you live. Hello, welcome to Washington Post Live. I'm Leanne Caldwell, an anchor here at Washington Post Live and also co-author of the Early 202 newsletter. Today, we are talking about America's infrastructure needs, and we are speaking with Andy Burke, the Biden administration's point person for broadband who works with the Commerce Department. Andy, thanks so much for joining us. And to all of our viewers, uh, feel free to tweet at us if you have any questions for Andy regarding broadband and the country's infrastructure. Um, Andy, uh, Andy, I wanted to start first, just very generally. What are America's needs as far as broadband is concerned? We have a huge number of needs across the country, and it's easy, especially when you're in Washington, D.C., Leanne, to think, oh, well, listen, everybody has access to this because many people who are uh, watching this are obviously doing that through the web. So for us, one of the biggest things to understand is how critical this is to modern life and that much like roads and uh, electricity and water. This is now everyday infrastructure. Uh, we know that millions of Americans go without it, um, that there are infrastructure uh, needs that have to be dealt with to make it a reality for people. And then finally, the affordability piece is really important so that people can access it and then they have the skills and the device to use it. Who are the people who don't have access um, and who needs this access either through um, government assistance or through just the lines being run uh, to where they live and work? Well, there's some big categories of people. You have a number of people in rural America. I've been in 31 states in the last seven and a half months, so seen it firsthand. Uh, you've got people who live in the inner city They've been, um, their connections are often slow. The networks have not been invested in. Uh, and then you've got a number of people across the country who just can't afford it uh, because they don't have the income. Of course, you have the Affordable Connectivity Program, which gives a $30 voucher to people so that they can access it. That's been a huge piece of the administration's policy so that we can make this dream of everybody having access to reality. Just in the last couple of months, the administration has announced uh, big investments in, in broadband and infrastructure. Um, you know, a lot of it coming from the bipartisan infrastructure bill that passed Congress. Uh, you know, there's $45 billion for high-speed internet, $65 billion for rural broadband. Can you talk about the differences in these programs and what all this money specifically is going to be used for? Yeah, so you have actually in the bipartisan infrastructure law, $65 billion for, uh, for broadband. 14 billion of that goes to the Federal Communications Commission for the Affordable Connectivity Program. That's that $30 voucher. And as you may remember a few months ago, the president and the vice president had all the different major service providers at the White House to announce that they would give a $30 product uh, to people. And so that $30 voucher essentially makes internet free for that group of people who make 200% of poverty or less. Then you have $2 billion that's gone to the United States Department of Agriculture. Um, that is really specifically for rural broadband. 
and $48 billion is at the Department of Commerce, where I am. Uh, 42 and a half of that goes to the Broadband Equity Access and Deployment Program. That's really mostly, not all, but mostly about connectivity, not just in rural America, but across the country. Um, there's a billion dollars for Middle Mile. That's really the, the fiber that runs down uh, the middle of highways or major arteries so that people can then build out to the, to the last mile to the houses and businesses. $3 billion for um, tribal work. Um, I've been in a, a number of different tribal lands over the course of the last few months. Talk about people who've really been left out and the administration knows that and is doing something about it. And then $2.75 billion for digital equity. That's really devices and affordability and skills all over the country. And if you think about this, it's the connection, it's the devices, it's the skills, it's the um, affordability. All these pieces are being tackled at once, again, to make this seem a lot more like infrastructure that everybody has real access to. Are the broadband companies, how cooperative are they and are they being paid given subsidies to do this and are they doing it effectively? Because ultimately this is a business for them. It is, it is a business for many of them. Now there are all kinds of different players in this. You've got the major companies that people think of that you might get your internet service to through. There are also cooperatives. There are municipal networks like we had in Chattanooga, Tennessee. Uh, there are mom and pops who run small internet service providers. So there's an entire range. And especially as you get out in rural America, you see all kinds of different options for people. Um, some of them uh, might be uh, really robust and some of them might be small. And it's also the fact that some of them are incredibly expensive. So in fact, what you'll see is often the, the worse your service, the more money that you pay. So you could be in rural America, you could be getting basically dial-up speed, and it's, it's, um, it's really common for people to be paying $150, $200, $250 a month for what is essentially dial-up speed. So we know that this is a problem. And right now we're at the point where states are doing, are planning how to use that $42.5 billion of funding to build out all across the country. And we gotta make sure that we use that efficiently, effectively. And that's something Secretary Raimondo is emphasizing to us every day. The $30 voucher every month for people who make 200% poverty or less, um, how many people, have signed up for it and how, you know, is there how much of a percentage of people who are eligible for it still need to sign up and don't know about it? Yeah, well, we had a event earlier uh, this year with the president, with the vice president, where she announced a million new signups for that. This is something that the administration's really been pushing. When I'm out on the road talking to mayors, one of the things I tell almost everybody is you need to have a sign up day across your community get people to sign up because yes, there are millions more who qualify and we got to get the word out so that people have access to this. Um, the Obama administration, uh, this was also a huge goal of theirs, internet for everyone. Why didn't that happen? Well, the, the biggest change between now and then is first of all, the president really has this on the front of his agenda. And the second piece is amazingly in Washington DC, we've had a bipartisan infrastructure law that puts $65 billion into this, 
you know, if you add up all the digital equity funds together over the last 20 years, that number would be zero. We have $2.75 billion in the, in the bipartisan infrastructure law. So there's been really a reckoning around uh, this issue. A big piece of that, of course, is the pandemic, where people just kind of understood how fundamental this is to American life. And so we really need to, um, to understand that this is the moment for us to transform our country when it comes to infrastructure and in the uh, internet world. Is this the last thing that the government needs to do? Do you think that after this tranche of money that 100% of people in this country who want to be connected will be connected? This is not the last thing that we need to do. We're certainly going to connect every person. That's part of the work, but that doesn't mean that everybody's going to have access because we still have issues of skills and affordability and, uh, and devices. And so this digital equity work, which is that those are the three pieces of digital equity, that's going to have to continue both at the state, federal, and local level. And there's also a racial divide here. You mentioned tribal lands, but also Black and Hispanics are also much less likely to be connected to the internet or have access. Um, so are you prioritizing those communities? Yeah, absolutely. So we have outreach that goes specifically to those communities. I've spent a fair amount of my time uh, working in, in this area. And there's a tendency to think this is a rural issue. It is an American issue that goes everywhere. And if you listen to the president, the vice president, we're talking about it so soon. We're going to be talking about uh, connecting minority community grants. This this is, comes from a previous appropriations bill. Um, but we're thinking about every American and having meaningful access. So, our, for example, the speed that we're looking at is 100 download speed, 20 upload speed. There are plenty of people in the middle of uh, American cities who don't have access to that kind of speed, and they have to be brought along as well. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you, as you mentioned, were mayor of Chattanooga. This was a big priority for yours when you were mayor. Why? The, the Internet is really just a tool, um, but it's a tool that leads to economic prosperity and to high quality of life. So um, if you think about today, uh, the internet is how we get our jobs. The internet is how we connect to family members and people we love. The internet is how we get our entertainment. And without all those pieces uh, together, your quality of life isn't going to be the same. And so Chattanooga, we had the uh, first fiber network that connected to every home and business for 600 square miles. Uh, we were the first gig city, then the first 10 gig city just a few weeks ago. Uh, Chattanooga announced it'd be the first 25 gig, and for people who are not as internet savvy, um, if you might get a, a 50 connection across your, your uh, network today, one gig is 1,000, 10 gig is 10,000, and 25 gig is 25,000. So um, that's, the, that's the kind of speed you're talking about that some Americans have access to, as other Americans might have access to 8, 10, 12. And then it quickly became apparent that we also needed to have this um, affordability component, uh, the skills component, and the um, devices component. And the, one of the last things I did when I was mayor that I'm incredibly proud of is that we became the first community in the country to have free high-speed internet for every family with a child on free or reduced hmm. Did that change quality of life in Chattanooga? Did it change, um, you know? Uh, 
a prosperity there? Well, in um, 2020, Forbes said we'd be the number one place for new jobs in America. Now, 2020 obviously didn't <laughs> turn out like any of us planned, uh, but the point is that I've seen this firsthand. And Chattanooga also had one of the highest wage growths in the country while I was mayor. And so this is, this is essential and part of the story. And President Biden has been clear that this is part of the American recovery, especially as we um, come back from COVID. Globally, looking globally, China has called for, quote, a fair and equitable Internet based on global competition. So is the United States able to compete with China? And what do you make of that description of what they say they want around the world? Well, I think that our goal is to ensure that we are at the head of the pack when it comes to global competition. Um, this is something that the president's been talking about, especially as it as it relates to China. Obviously, there's been a huge amount of work done to ensure that we continue to be a global leader, and every American having access to the internet is part of that. Uh, we're this is not a quick project; it's an infrastructure project, right? Those don't happen overnight. But over the course of the next few years, what you're going to see is the build out happening all over the country which helps uh, these communities have greater economic development and prosperity. Um, Republicans have, uh, you know, they say that if they take back the House of Representatives, they are going to um, really investigate the Biden administration on issues of, quote, big tech, uh, um, censorship. Uh, they have a long list of complaints um, regarding big tech. So. What is what is your response and how does the Biden administration plan to deal address that? Yeah, so first of all, the most important thing is that goes beyond where I am and with the work that we're doing. What we're really talking about is much more on the infrastructure side, on the skill side, and the big tech piece that you're that that you're chatting about, which I think both parties are investigating right now, trying to figure out of what to do, that really is beyond my purview. So uh, inflation um, remains stubbornly high. Does that have any sort of impact on ensuring that this, this access to broadband internet is, uh, continues? Absolutely, inflation matters because we have $42.5 billion to build out the infrastructure. There are two things that are really important about that. Number one is we have to use this efficiently and effectively. And so um, as, you, as you build out more, obviously we're gonna be worried about the pricing of things like fiber and of course of the workforce. So there are two things um, that, that uh, two work streams that are part of what we're doing. And uh, earlier um, last month, you saw um, Secretary Raimondo out um, talking uh, about this and opening a new corning plant in Arizona. That's part of our work to make sure that the pricing uh, is available, that the things like fiber are built in America, because as you um, do more of this work, obviously we're worried about the prices, both from inflation and from the amount of material that we need. And the second is there's a workforce issue. Uh, we know that that we need 100,000 new workers in this area, um, that, that these jobs are going to be generated. And so we have another stream of work that's all about ensuring that Americans are ready for this work and that, that there's going to be um, digging up of, uh, you know, of 
roads, there's going to be climbing towers, there's going to be splicing fiber, all kinds of work. And we need to have the workforce that's prepared for that. Uh, do you have the workforce and how do you train them and recruit them? Well, we're working on it. So the, there, are more, there are more people needed. So we're in constant contact with uh, the state, uh, with states around the country. Uh, part of their plans has to be how do they build this, uh, this workforce that they need? Because obviously uh, I was in Louisiana a few weeks ago with Governor Bell Edwards. Um, he's saying, not only do we wanna be out in front and building, but we want Louisianans to build the networks that happen here. And so, um, you know, they need certifications. We need to be in community colleges across the country and vocational schools and ensuring that there are people who are prepared to build this. Where do you see this in 10 years? Where do, will the country be on this issue? Where does it need to be? We need to make sure that every American has access, meet the president's goal, which is that every American has access. Uh, we need to make sure that we are, as we said earlier, regularly thinking about the work of affordability and skills and devices as not just um, side work, but central to, um, to making sure that every American can prosper. Um, we need to uh, ensure that we have a, a use this do these dollars to invest in a way that is is as future-proof as possible so that as the amount of connectivity and speeds and reliability that people needs grows, um, that the networks can grow with it. And so 10 years from now, uh, we can't be having this discussion anymore. We won't be because of the work that we're doing. And I think then using, to, using this work to build on the equity issues will really help our country grow. Great. Andy, I'm about out of time, but one quick question. You're, of course, were mayor of Chattanooga. You're now in the Biden administration. Um, how long do you plan to stay in this job and where do you see yourself next? Well, I'm enjoying the work that I'm doing and to try to do some of this on, on a larger scale is nice. Um, obviously, being mayor is a good, is a good job. I enjoyed that, um, but it, it's really satisfying to see and be part of an a initiative that really harkens back to rural electrification and some of the biggest ideas that people have ever had in this country. Andy Burke with the Commerce Department, thank you so much for joining us today. We are out of time and stay with us. Next, we will be joined by Michael Powell, the president and CEO of the Internet and Television Association. The following segment was produced and paid for by a Washington Post Live event sponsor. The Washington Post newsroom was not involved in the production of this content. Hello, I'm Elise Labatt from American University, and today we're talking about the recent infrastructure bill, the digital divide, and the importance of geospatial technology and data. Now, modernizing our infrastructure requires a real understanding of each project's location and its relationship to its environmental and human-made systems. And to discuss how we get that understanding and how technology location intelligence and spatial data ensures infrastructure is developed with resiliency, sustainability, and equity, I'm joined by Jack Dangerman, founder and president of ESRI. Welcome, Jack. Thanks very much, Elise. So this infrastructure bill is set to address many challenges across industries, so from your perspective, what are some of the highest priorities and how do we use technology 
to make sure that that helps us understand it a little bit better and helps us advance. Yeah, my, my sense of this bill is it's going to be enormously impacting. I mean, these thousands of projects are going to have little footprints on the planet that actually, in our country specifically, that actually impact the future. And we need to do this. We need to go all in with respect to investing on creating a carbon uh, negative future. I mean, we have to pull carbon out of the atmosphere because right now it's uh, it's just, you know, we're going in the wrong direction. So these this effort uh, means these little dots on a map, as I think about them, are going to be directed by environmental factors, by social factors, by economic factors, so that they can get the maximum value out of their uh, out of the investments this country is making. So geospatial is best thought of by normal people as maps. These maps are digital to these days. They're measuring virtually everything on our planet. And by combining them in various ways, we can understand where, I mean, that's the big question, where the investments should be made. And more importantly, what is the impact of each of these investments? I get excited about that because it really brings together geography. Uh, you know, geography is the science of our world. It brings it together in a way that's very um, applicable. These computer maps can overlay information and let it be understandable to people. Where is my money going? Where should we not locate? What should we do? Uh, and the integration of those maps in kind of digital models of our world uh, is, is very powerful. So I'm excited about this uh, these investments, but I'm also excited by the fact that at all levels of government, local government, state government, national government, there's kind of a new awareness to uh, this kind of information guiding guiding where where our investments should be made and where they shouldn't be made. Well, it's really interesting because your recent user conference, the theme of it was mapping common ground. And it seems to be that if you're using all the best design, science, critical thinking, and then laying over that spatial technology and intelligence, that really has a way of kind of finding some kind of common ground for how we approach these problems. Yeah, if you if you lay on, on top of maps all the various interests for a common geography, what you find is there's very little conflict, but people often argue about these little conflicts such that you'd think everything's going uh, going bad. It's not actually. Finding common grounds is very is very valuable to use this geospatial approach, and this is being seen now by all levels of government. Uh, last week, our uh, White House released a new climate portal, which brought all the scientific information from our federal government together and made it available through web services to state and local governments, so that they could pick the right locations, actually ask for grants for funding infrastructure. Uh, in the best ways. So I, I am so excited about that particular project because it it means that we're leveraging in a kind of all government approach uh, uh, to to be able to create a better future. So the infrastructure bill singles out resilience, sustainability, and equity. Some of these areas can feel a little bit overwhelming as critical criteria for action and funding. And and one of the clear investment priorities was ensuring equitable access for broadband across the country in both urban and rural areas, narrowing that uh, digital divide. We saw this during the pandemic when school children were being forced to study at home, that issue of fairness really coming up. 
So talk to me about the role of mapping and spatial analytics in helping us understand and, and closing this digital divide. You know, we can map out communities, demographic communities, income, ethnicity, all kinds of characteristics about the people. And what they become are layers in uh, assessments. We can also map out accessibility, for example, to schools or to health clinics or to public transit. Uh, these are these all become geographic factors that can be screened and used to direct and make better uh, in, intelligent decisions. So geography is a kind of framework or a language to allow people to make holistic both decisions and allocations, but also evaluations. We can understand the the impact of a particular decision or not. And certainly broadband is one of the big ones that's being funded, you know, breaking down the digital divide. But uh, all these other factors also have to be considered. Some of our communities and users uh, across the country are, are using this as a regular screening methodology or evaluation criteria for every decision that's made in public uh, local governments that exist. Good example is uh, the city of San Antonio in Texas, but there's lots of others. Yeah, clearly technology and intelligence on location and geography can help us identify areas of the greatest need for modern infrastructure, but also create that common ground between government, business, and society. And our reliance on this technology and, and data is only going to grow. Jack Dangerman, president and founder of Esri, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you very much, Elise. We'll send it back now to the Washington Post. And now back to Washington Post Live. Hello again, I'm Leanne Caldwell, anchor at Washington Post and co-author of the Early 202 newsletter. Now we are continuing our conversation with Michael Powell. He is president and CEO of the NCTA, the Internet and Broadband Trade Association. Um, Michael, thanks so much for joining us today. It's a real pleasure to be with you, Leanne. Thank you for having me. Of course. So, and again, reminder to our viewers, if you have any questions, feel free to tweet at us at Post Live. Uh, Michael, I want to start. Um, we just heard from Andy Burke and the Biden administration who talked about the Biden administration's goals uh, for connecting every single American to the internet. What challenges remain to be able to do that? Yeah, well, I'd start out by saying it's it's a worthy goal. I would say we have a historical opportunity to reach that goal. Um, and so we all should be focused on that. Um, I think it's very important to emphasize that money alone is not the challenge. You know, this is a country of 3.8 million square miles with uh, desert, mountain, and forests alike. Uh, it's a very, very challenging project, a complex one and the execution risks are significant, uh, not only in the macroeconomic environment that I heard described, inflation, risks of recessions, shortages in labor and chips, but just the complexity of the distribution of the money, ensuring that it's invested where it's needed most uh, and that we protect against the kind of waste, fraud, and abuse that large programs like this often uh, attract. So uh, we have a lot of work ahead of us as a community uh, over the next five years. Uh, yeah, you laid it out like it's a very, very big task. So is the amount of money that the Congress appropriated in the bipartisan infrastructure bill, about $65 billion, is that enough? It's hard to say. I think it's enough. I think we should also be willing to ask ourselves occasionally, is it too much? 
Uh, it's an enormous amount of money going through uh, a wide range of different programs through a lot of different uh, regulatory agencies and organs of government. Um, and, you know, it's plenty of money if it's used efficiently, effectively for the stated purpose uh, of getting those online who currently have no access. What I have known in my career is that um, because uh, the gap in rural America is largely because of economic infeasibility, uh, there are always mighty efforts to shift the money to markets where there's a better return, better return for whether it's a city broadband project uh, or a private one. And then a lot of times in the past, we end up spending a lot of money that goes toward uh, uh, areas where there's already broadband and we're overbuilding instead of investing in the economically challenged spaces that need the money most. So I think if we're disciplined, uh, it's the right amount of money. Uh, if we don't execute properly, uh, I think we would regret it. And does the government and did they put in the guardrails to ensure that discipline or is it up to the broadband companies to kind of do the right thing, which might cost them a little bit more money to ensure that there is connectivity in these more difficult areas that are tend to be more rural, as you said? Yeah, to be clear, everybody has a significant responsibility, government and the private sector. Um, but, you know, this is an unusual program. It's an enormous amount of money in which the federal jurisdiction is setting the application process and the rules. But the distribution decisions are going to be made by uh, 50 different states uh, with varying levels of experience and sophistication um, through various kinds of regulatory agencies with their own uh, objectives in their own communities. So, you know, it's going to be a challenge where there's going to have to be a permanently iterative conversation between uh, companies on the ground trying to get the work done uh, with both their state and local government partners, uh, as well as making sure the federal government as the overall overseer is well aware of where uh, problems are cropping up and where they're not, and whether they can enforce the guardrails that Congress insisted on to be good stewards of the money. As I mentioned earlier, one perfect example of that is uh, making sure that money goes to the unserved communities first. Um, you know, in 2008, we did a surge of broadband funding as well. Uh, and later the GAO wrote, GAO wrote critically about how much of the money ended up in places where broadband already existed. Um, and we need to guarantee that that doesn't happen again. So uh, we all have a lot of work to do. I think we're working cooperatively. And I think there's a lot of reason for optimism. Yeah, you know, can you go into a little bit more about that uh, in the first few months of this? How, are there good signs that this cooperation can extend deep into this program? And how long do you expect it to take? Yeah, I think there are a lot of good signs for cooperation. You know, I can speak for my companies and I think it would be equally true for most of the ISP community, including telephone companies, wireless companies. Uh, we're all in, meaning everybody wants to participate. Everybody's going to make application for funds to try to build in these communities. Almost every one of our companies have announced rural expansion plans. Uh, all of our companies have affordability programs uh, for low-income communities that will be combined uh, with what the government's doing on affordability. So, yeah, I think we have a lot of signs of optimism. Uh, we feel really good working with the FCC on the mapping project. 
which is the essential predicate to the distribution uh, uh, of the money ultimately in 2023. Uh, that map will be uh, evergreen, meaning it'll be continuously uh, iterative and needing to be improved. Uh, we're working cooperatively with the FCC. I do not in envy uh, the tasks they have before them, but uh, we're being as uh, effective as we can, helping them get the data they need and helping find the errors in the mapping that'll be essential to a proper distribution. You know, you asked how long will it take? Uh, I suppose that's anyone's guess, but I am willing to say this. I think we are always in danger uh, of being overly optimistic about the timeframes. Uh, you hear a lot of people say, oh, in three years, we'll be here. I really do think this is probably a decade long project. Um, you know, the money doesn't even start, the maps don't even get formally done until the spring of 2023. Um, there's a, this is a very complex undertaking um, in, in, in pretty remote areas. And I think it's just gonna be a, a long, stable, steady slog uh, I think we can do it, but if we start wringing our hands after two or three years that it's failed, I think we can we can lose our nerve and our will uh, to can you continue on that course and get the job done. You've been in this industry a very long time. Uh, President Obama had the same goal, is to connect everyone to the internet. What fell short there and why will this time be different? Yeah, well, I heard your earlier guess. I think the biggest difference is, you know, President Obama didn't have the benefit of a bipartisan Congress that came together uh, to issue this kind of money. I mean, um, this is unprecedented by an order of magnitude. Um, the money that President Obama had access to uh, in the wake of the 2008 collapse uh, was a penance compared to what we have today. Um, so number one, that just the order of magnitude of resources we have available are dramatically higher. I think the second problem, which I mentioned in passing a minute ago, is those programs were not well disciplined. A lot of the money went to the wrong places. Um, again, there were lots of uh, post-mortems written about several of those programs and how an enormous amount of money went to areas that already had broadband. And when you do that, guess what? The areas that we most say we're focused on serving uh, ended up on the wrong end of the stick again. So uh, I do think there were errors in oversight and administration in those prior programs or a, a comfort level, which I believe there shouldn't have been with letting money go to more economically viable regions where the private market was already attracting uh, build building and investment. So that's the mistake we can't make a second time. Mm -hmm. um, I want to turn a little bit to COVID. The pandemic uh, made us all realize how reliant we are on the internet. Um, what lessons did the industry learn during that time? Gosh, we learned we learned a lot. Um, number one, we learned uh, expect the unexpected. You know, I don't think anybody had in their use case uh, two years before the pandemic that you would get a sixty percent surge in internet traffic as a consequence of a rapidly spreading virus that would force Americans to all go home uh, and conduct their lives from the internet. Um, I think the beauty of broadband investments is that it is a, a massive tool of general applicability that can be called on uh, by our society, by our citizens, and by our government uh, as a tool and a toolkit to address 
uh, both known and unknown challenges to the society. So number one, I think we learned that it's essential, uh, that it's critical, that it's an important tool for uh, response to uh, difficult times, um, and that we need to treat it uh, with that level of seriousness and commitment to get as many Americans online as possible. The second thing I think we learned, Leanne, is that, uh, boy, I don't think we could have designed a greater pressure test for the network, and it passed with flying colors for all practical purposes. Uh, the network held up to uh, a capacity surge that far exceeded the standard model. Um, you know, this is a testament to industries who've built in the capacity uh, for that kind of spike, the engineering necessary uh, to deal with those unanticipated loads and the rapid responses of crews on the ground to expanding capacity in response to the challenge. So number one, I think as Americans, we should feel confident that we have a pretty robust and resilient uh, infrastructure that could stand up to that kind of unanticipated change. And then I think the last point I would make is you couldn't have done that on the fly. Uh, the reason that came through so successfully was uh, a decade or, no, or more, really 20 years of steady high investment uh, in that infrastructure to the tune in our industry of almost $30 billion annually to make sure that we're deploying the best we can deploy at any moment in time. You know, just the year before, cable companies had completed the project to provide gig service to 80% of the country, uh, over 90% of our footprint. Um, and so a lot of Americans had that to rely on as a consequence of investment decisions that were really launched you know, 10 years ago. So it always pays to be building uh, for a future far in advance uh, and continuing to incent investment now for a time and a problem that you can't foresee. So did the pandemic catapult any technological advances that you might not have seen or experienced except because of the pandemic? Well, in some ways, it's a good question. I would say more than um, unknown technologies, I think it accelerated a commitment to more advanced technologies. So in our industry, you know, we made an announcement four years ago that we were driving toward delivering 10 gigabit per second service, 10G we call it, um, you know, by sometime in the 2025, 2026 timeframe. And we're well on our path uh, to delivering that kind of capacity for America. And I think the pandemic merely put a punctuation mark uh, on those plans and caused us to uh, recommit them, recommit to them um, and uh, accelerate our efforts in that regard. I would compliment my uh, fellow infrastructure builders in the wireless industry. We've heard a lot about 5G and advanced wireless networks that are also accelerating to deliver world-class, first best-in-class, world-class uh, wireless and wired networks uh, for the United States of America. And I think um, the pandemic was um, a good test, but also a great challenge um, and a great uh, illumination of the path forward that we're all on and excited to be pursuing. Is that what's necessary? Should there be another pandemic or another major disruption in our lives? Or uh, what lessons were learned? Are there any plans happening now to prepare for the next possible thing? Yeah, without real clear specifics, all of our companies also had to learn a lot about operating under hardship, right? 
operating when your call centers aren't aren't able to be in the building and present. You know, there's a lot of stories that are untold about um, us being able to change the business to bring call center hundreds and thousands of call center employees into their homes, change the technology to respond to problems, rapid response engineering teams that could go up uh, and quickly add capacity to a pole uh, or to split a node, uh, major operation centers that were monitoring surges in demand and making adjustments. All that's part of the life of broadband um, that I think when put under stress is important. When I look at the world today, I see a lot of existential danger. You know, we still have the risk of disease. Uh, we have climate change risk. Um, we have geopolitical risk uh, with the Russians and the Chinese. Um, we have a lot of tough problems that we're staring at as a world and a country. And I'm pretty confident um, broadband is going to have to be uh, uh, one of the tools in our, in our kit uh, for addressing those challenges in ways we probably can't clearly imagine now, uh, but I'm 100% confident will be the better for having um, world-class capability to bring, bring to bear on the problem. On the flip side of that, if you think broadband is the answer, what about uh, you know warfare these days could cut broadband service? Um, how do how are the how is the industry dealing with those sorts of threats where there is people aren't able to access it because of some rogue actors? or natural disaster. Absolutely. You know, I think if you were in a board meeting uh, of our companies, um, you know, second only to this commitment to build to the unserved uh, is the growing and never ending concerns about cybersecurity, cyber threat, uh, and, and, and network danger. Uh, I serve on a number of boards, including, for example, the Mayo Clinic, um, which has a massive medical infrastructure. We worry about this technologically every day. Um, I do think that uh, we've been involved as partners with the government in hardening those networks and monitoring them for illicit activity uh, and trying to be alert to the geopolitical threats uh, as well as criminal threats that we encounter almost uh, every minute of every hour of every day. Um, so, you know, we're very proud uh, of our record over the course of the last 10 or 20 years uh, as a network um, to protecting consumers from uh, attacks on the reliability of the network uh, uh, or uh, cyber threats that cause harm to consumers. But, but this is the kind of thing you have to be ever vigilant about. Uh, you can never rest. Uh, and I think those risks have only increased for a country. When you say an infrastructure is critical, it means it's critical, meaning the loss of it would also be pretty devastating. And we also need to remember broadband doesn't work without electricity. If the underlying grid were to fail, the electrical systems were to be uh, inoperable, then, then, then you'd have a big vertical stack problem of everything that depends on that. Uh, natural disasters, similarly, I think we have uh, a good record. Our teams are generally well prepared to work with FEMA in the face of hurricanes and storms to move into a community uh, and get networks restored as quickly as possible. Uh, and those capabilities continue to develop. So are we too reliant on broadband? I don't know, are we too reliant on cars? Are we too reliant on any technology? Um, no, but I think your question, not to dis, I shouldn't dismiss Flipply because I think we should be, we should be focused on redundancy too. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm an old soldier. I come from a family of 
military people, you know, there's, there's never a plan A, there's plan B and C. You know, uh, you know, I can say as a private citizen, I depend very heavily on my broadband, but do I have, you know, paper copies of my family's affairs somewhere in a safe? Yes, I do. Um, do I every now and then think about what it would mean if I couldn't access my bank online or uh, uh, renew some important uh, rental agreement? Uh, every now and then I do think about that. And I think both citizens and I think industries need to be very thoughtful about how would they respond um, if suddenly they were faced with that. Um, that's a societal risk that technology always presents, but we seem to uh, historically find our way through it. Michael Powell, we are out of time. Thank you so much for this very honest and candid conversation. I really enjoyed it. My pleasure. Thanks for listening. For more information on our upcoming programs, go to WashingtonPostLive.com.